you're listening to another episode of Plastic Surgery Unplugged, I'm your host, Dr. Raghu Othre of Othre Facial Plastics here in Houston, Texas. And today we have a special guest. We have Dr. Anna Steve joining us all the way from New York. So welcome. Thanks, Dr. A. Thank you. Thanks for being on here. And uh, first of all, we just got, I just got an email about 20 minutes ago that we're finally ranked on the Apple podcast. So basically people actually want to listen to us, which is kind of very interesting um, to me, because I really assumed when I started this that nobody is ever going to want to listen to me, but I guess we're, we're kind of interesting. So that being said, Dr. Congrats. Anna, I know. Thanks. I know. Amazing. I'm kind of so Dr. Anna, I'm going to tell our viewership what I know about Dr. Anna. So <laughs> she's originally from Canada, so she was out and about from Canada. <laughs> and um, she specializes in breast surgery up in New York. So introduce yourself and we'll go from there. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm a small town girl with big city dreams. That's what I always say. The town that I grew up in is about 500 people. Wow. And there's probably about 500 people in the building that I live in now. So That's cool. um, it's been quite a, quite a journey. I love the energy in New York City. I just uh, joined 19 Plastic Surgery as the breast specialist. So welcoming all sorts of patients with all sorts of breast problems. And it's been a pleasure so far. So what do you love doing? Like if when you say breast stuff that that encompasses a huge box right yeah so it's starting from if you want to break it into two big categories i guess you have recon after you know mastectomy that kind of stuff then you've got the cosmetic you've got the primaries you got the revisions and then so what is it like if there's one thing that you say this is something i love to do what is it <laughs> I love it all, but I would say my favorite stuff is the, the complexities. So what I love about plastic surgery is that you sort of have like a toolkit for solving problems. So the complex breast revisions, the tuberous breast cases, the breast reconstruction patients that maybe like haven't achieved their final outcome yet. That's my favorite stuff because they always have like really directed things that it is that, you know, they're you're not totally satisfied with and you really have to use your toolkit to solve the problem and figure out how you could get them to where they want to be so when you say um the complex cases are you talking more reconstructive status post mastectomy is that what you really love or more of the patients that have had you know hey i've had a couple of breast dogs in the past i've got capsular contracture i've had that kind of that bandwagon which is it that you primarily see yourself or whatever it is actually both so there's a lot of overlap um in terms of the types of problems that you see especially with implant-based breast reconstruction okay. and breast and breast revisions so a lot of the tools are the same a lot of the solutions are the same and so i'm finding there's also similarities in that you know they're both patients that have already had something done to try and achieve a certain aesthetic goal and they right. haven't quite got there yet. So yeah, I, I find that there's a lot of overlap and also, I mean, it speaks volumes to the overlap it, that um, in terms of breast reconstruction and the aesthetic outcomes that you can expect that um, things are, have come a long way 
in that you can compare sort of like the aesthetic patient to the breast rebound patient. There's certainly differences in terms of the psychology and also some of the complexities that come alongside with breast reconstruction, like radiation and um, cancer status and things like that. But in terms of the aesthetics of the breast, um, there's a lot of similarities. So how did you get, walk me through how this became your passion. So um, is it something that you woke up at age three and you said, hey, this is what <laughs> I want to do with my life? Or is it a random series? So my, my thing is the way I landed up doing what I do is a complete random series of events. I was an engineer. And I can draw parallels to what I do in engineering, but it's still a pretty, it's out there somewhere. Um, so how did you get here? Great question. So also a journey for me. Um, I would say early on in the get-go, I was like super into sports, loved all aspects of all types of sports. And I thought maybe I'd be interested in being a physical therapist. And there was this pre-health professions club when I was young that I got involved in like in kind of my grade 12 year. And they didn't have any opportunities for me to follow alongside a physical therapist, but they were like, hey, do you have any interest in medicine, specifically right. surgery? And I was like, mm, I don't know, I'm kind of squeamish, uh, but hey, let's be open-minded. And so actually in my grade 12 year, I had this really unique opportunity to spend some time in the operating room. And I was like, wow, blown away by what you can do in like a short period of time in the operating room. And I thought, you know what, there's the health aspect of uh, medicine is something I could really sort of get on board with. And at that time, I didn't know anything about plastic surgery. So that was, again, something that I kind of just discovered by being open-minded in, in medical school, sort of like trying out all the different options everywhere from like radiology to primary care to plastic surgery. And what I found unique about plastic surgery is kind of what I already mentioned that like, it's, it's really a toolkit rather than like an instruction manual. So, you know, to replace a hip, you sort of go through the same steps every time, but in plastic surgery, every operation is a little bit different. And the other thing that's unique about it from a surgery perspective is often in surgery, you're removing something that's broken. And in plastic surgery, I feel like you're trying to like, always give function back or improve aesthetics. So it, it's always about like enhancement rather than like removal. And that's something that I find is such a positive aspect of it that keeps, I think, the, the outlook a little bit happier than unfortunately some other specialties. And then in terms of the breast uh, focus, I, I find I have like three different types of patients. So one is like the young woman who like really just wants to look good they don't care about too much else the woman who's like you know what i kind of want to look good but i also think i want to have kids and like i don't want to explore what my options are maybe before kids and then wish i would have waited until later and then thirdly like people who have had like a life event either pregnancy weight fluctuation uh breast cancer that like for whatever reason their life outcome uh, or life circumstance has left them with an aesthetic that they're unhappy with. And I, I kind of feel like within the last five years, because I am recently a mother myself, that I've gone through 
almost all of those narratives, with the exception of not having lived through breast cancer, but done a, you know, a breast reconstruction fellowship where I, I've had the opportunity to relate to those types of patients and, you know, understand their journey that I find it makes my patient connection and my ability to sort of like discuss the intricacies and details of, you know, the pre and post-operative process with women enhanced because I feel like I really understand their situation. And so that's kind of how in, in a, a sense, my journey landed me where I am now. <laughs> Got it. Two comments. So first comment, it's very interesting. This is the third time you use the word tools. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do my mainly rhinoplasty. That's my shtick. So I do a lot of rhinoplasty and it's kind of my favorite. And so I'm actually in the process of writing a book and um, a rhinoplasty textbook. And literally the, I just wrote the first chapter and kind of, which is one of the things like how I want to introduce the book. And the way I look at rhinoplasty is I see rhinoplasty or the rhinoplasty surgeon, I should say, as having a toolbox. And that's literally what I wrote on page <laughs> one. So patients a lot of times come to me and say, oh, I see you do an ultrasonic rhinoplasty. I want an ultrasonic rhinoplasty. Oh, I want a TO strut. Oh, I want this. And one of the things that I take, you know, that I find that I have to explain to them is all of these things are cool. Like these are all names of my really special tools that I have in my toolbox, kind of like a socket wrench, a plier, um, a hammer, and all these things are tools. And when I get there, I need to know how to use all these tools and figure out which ones are going to work in your case. Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing a revision rhinoplasty, all bets are off. I mean, it's, I may use one tool or I may use 15 tools and you gotta be ready for all, all potentialities. So I like that because that's exactly the way I see my surgery is it's, it's a tool. I, I see myself having tools and you have to know which tool to use, when to use it. Totally. Okay, so I'm gonna put you on the spot and you have the right to say, I don't wanna answer that question. <laughs> um, you have the right to say no comment. Let's go to the next one, okay? So I'm gonna give you fair warning. So right now, you, there's a lot of controversy, especially maybe not in medical literature, as much, there is, as much as it is in what I call the public world whether it be Instagram, Facebook, stuff that's out there. So for example, I am Instagram friends with this guy who is this complete anti-breast implant dude who's like, his whole practice is in block resection. You gotta remove every last millimeter of the capsule or else bad juju happens. I mean, that's his shtick, right? And I'm not, I mean, if that's what he sees and that's his, belief system, I'm not, who am I to doubt it? But so here you are, you said, I've gone through being a recent mom, I've gone through almost every experience in there. So on the spot right now. So if you had to go through a breast augmentation, would you have a breast augmentation? <laughs> Interesting. So I think that um, the answer to that is yes. And the, the way that I really frame things for patients is that, you know, ultimately, like as a plastic surgeon, I'm a doctor. So the, the first thing is to do no harm. 
So if I thought that breast implants were definitively a harmful device, I wouldn't offer that operation. And I do think it's very important um, to help patients navigate all of the information that's out there. Because realistically, most of my patients actually are getting most of their information on Instagram. And so I have a lot of patient-centered education on my own channels. But I also find that, you know, really what they want is someone to help navigate sifting through all that information. So I have a conversation with them always uh, in women who are considering breast implants about all of the information and misinformation that's out there, as well as the gray areas. And so the gray areas, I say, you know what, there's been some concerns from, you know, for instance, the sort of full spectrum of what we discuss is and everything from breast implant illness to breast implant associated anaplastic lymphoma to breast implant associated squamous cell carcinoma. So, you know, we do the full sort of review of all of those things and what we know currently. And after that, you know, we sort of circle back to the fact that what we know now is what we know now. And there's a possibility in the future that we learn more. But in terms of the sort of things that are early on in our understanding, there's a lot of information out there, especially on social media about breast implant illness and breast implant illness is probably the least well understood right now. So it's a fairly vague collection of uh, symptoms like head fog, fatigue, joint pain, you know, those things are difficult to distinguish as related to specifically breast implants because they can happen from a lot of other things. But right now it's under investigation because there's a number of women who have breast implants who also have those problems and they haven't found another source of explaining those symptoms. So I told all women, like we're early on in our understanding of the process. There's a lot of new registries to help us document women with problems. And I say, you know what, if we put breast implants in and they were causing you problems, I think it's logical to remove them. I do not think that on block capsulectomy is the treatment of choice for most things though. I do think that's important to distinguish. So an on block capsulectomy is the treatment that's designed for BIA ALCL. So that is the lymphoma that's associated with textured breast implants. The specific type of textured breast implant that was most highly associated has been recalled from the market. So all women who have that of implant should seek advice from their plastic surgeon and, and be thinking about options to remove it. But I think that it's important to know that an on-block capsulectomy involves removal of the breast implant, but also removal of the entire capsule. And the capsule is actually a, a normal structure. So what, when a breast implant goes in the body, you form a capsule around it. And that's like the scar on the inside of the body. Just like you have a scar on the outside of the body, you have a scar on the inside. And in some women, that capsule can become um, contracted. That's called capsular contracture um, and can cause asymmetries in the breast. But that's also not an indication necessarily to have an on-block capsulectomy. And so the, the part of the capsule that exists behind the breast implant, right up against your chest wall, is very adherent to the chest wall. And removing that part of the capsule is actually quite a dangerous operation, which I feel strongly should be reserved for women who have a cancer diagnosis. 
and not women who have conditions that we don't yet know whether or not it's related to the breast implant, the breast implant and the capsule or a combination of the two. So I do think that that's like a, a very important distinction that the on block capsulectomy is like a cancer treatment for a cancer that we know does exist. It's rare, uh, but in terms of like navigating um, the treatment for other things, you know, I, I tell all women that have symptoms that are, you know, not attached to another diagnosis and have breast implants that we can remove the breast implants. And in some women that causes symptoms to get better in other women, it doesn't. So I think implant removal is a much simpler, much more straightforward operation than the on black capsulectomy. Right. Okay. So two more questions. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you can see how this happens where everything you say is can and will be used against you. And then you get more questions, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you have a, and you can break this up. So you have a young woman, let's say I'm going to give you a 21 year old, healthy, no medical problems comes in for a, a breast augmentation. Okay. Mm -hmm. So are you going to tell her saline? Are you going to tell her silicone? What are you going to tell her? Or are you going to tell her, <laughs> Hey, you get to pick. And of course, I know that there is a financial side to it as well, because silicone's a little bit more expensive, but let's say we took the money aspect out of it. What are you going to tell her? So I use um, almost exclusively silicone. So okay. silicone, and then I, I go through patients why and really unpack what it is that makes them think that they want saline implants. So I'm not opposed to using saline implants, but I think it's important to understand why someone wants saline implants. So in women who have concerns about silicone specifically, and that's the reason that they potentially want saline implants, they wanna avoid any potential complications associated with silicone, I think it's important to tell them that the shell of a saline implant is still silicone. Right. I also you know, let them know that for an equivalent size of implant, the silicone variety are much lighter than the saline ones. I think also the way that they behave is very different. So the saline implants tend to have a lot higher risk of rippling and visible rippling underneath the skin. And then the other thing that a lot of people really uh, want in terms of the saline is they've heard that they can limit the size of the scar with a saline implant. And really, I think in breast augmentation, you need a certain size of scar to safely do the operation. And you can fit both saline and silicone implants through that size of scar by using a, a Keller funnel. And the only difference in terms of, you know, the, the saline and the silicone otherwise is, you know, some women have had saline implants and they prefer it. And in that sense, I say, you know, if you've had the saline and that's your preference and you don't care about those other things, it's very reasonable. And the other sort of benefit or downside, depending on how you see it, is some women want to know if their breast implant has ruptured. So if you rupture a saline implant, it deflates. So you will know. Mm -hmm. And so I always tell people like, that's not an emergency. It's maybe an aesthetic urgency because you'll have a difference between the two sides. But you don't necessarily know when silicone implants rupture because you can have something called a silent rupture. Mm -hmm. The the you know nice thing to know about the silicone implants is when they 
rupture, they tend not to spill the way that saline ones do because they are filled with a form stable gel. So just like if you were to cut into a gummy bear, the gummy bear sort of like stays in one place, the silicone implants do something similar. Right. But you know, some people just have some security with the fact that like, if their implant ruptures, they're going to know about it. And in those cases, like I do offer both, but it's just important to, I think, understand where patients are at in terms of why they want what they want and understanding it so that you can help sort of educate them if there's, if there's some sort of like misinformation, because I wouldn't want to put a saline implant in a patient thinking that they were avoiding silicone altogether and then right. have them come back years later and say, what, why didn't you tell me that the shell was silicone? Like, that's why I had the saline to begin with, because I wanted to avoid silicone. And if you want to avoid silicone, then you should explore other options, maybe fat grafting or, you know, a breast lift or something other than a breast implant. Right. Breast enhancement. Complete side note. Have you seen <laughs> the movie Breast Men? No. <laughs> oh my God. You have to see the movie, okay? I, it sounds like it. It's a very, it's actually the, it's an older movie and you may have to like really search hard to find it, um, but. <laughs> it's not on it, Netflix? It may not be on Netflix, okay? <laughs> but um, the star of the movie is David Schwimmer. David Schwimmer is the main character and it's about the guy who invented the breast implant. Oh, okay. Cool. And it's kind of a fictionalized biographic movie about this guy. Okay. Oh, is, I love that. It is hilarious. It's it's funny. It's sad. It's it's all sorts of stuff. Okay. Like so, this guy is a resident or in med school. I think he was a resident. The movie starts with he's walking around in his neighborhood and he sees this girl in the window stuffing her bra with, <laughs> I think she must have been using Kleenex or something like that. And he's staring at it and, she, you know, she look, she catches him and then, you know, labels him a pervert and all sorts of stuff. So he comes up with this idea of an implant. And he goes to all of the, you know, his faculty and he's talking about it and stuff. And everybody basically thinks he's a pervert. Okay? <laughs> and there's something wrong with him mentally. But anyway, so I highly suggest if you can find the movie, it actually is, it's very humorous. It's very, it's probably not kid friendly, but it's <laughs> definitely a funny movie to watch. I love that. When you said breast man, I actually thought I was thinking about like a man seeking breast implants. So I was no. totally off base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's an interesting movie. It gives you a, a perspective into this guy's life. And, you know, this guy lived a, I forget the guy's name, but he lived a very radical life. Like this guy made truckloads of money, okay? <laughs> And then overnight, he loses all of this money because with the Dow Corning um, silicone issue, like when it first came out. So he goes from like this crazy Vegas style lifestyle, like blowing money left and right. And then he goes bankrupt. <laughs> and then he comes up with the idea of using saline. Okay. 
And just that transition of this up, down, up, down, up, down, it's, it's actually a very interesting, um, it's an interesting movie, it's an interesting perspective. So if you have a chance, go find the movie and watch it. It's kind of fun. I love um, that. Yeah, what do you do for fun? Well, explore New York City with my two young kids and husband. We're like tourists in the city still. We we love every minute of it. And we've been recently exploring the city through food. So that mm -hmm. began <laughs> began as it should in New York as a pizza tour. We actually used the, the app called One Bite. And the first year that we were here for my surgical training, we tried about a hundred pizza places in one wow. year. And I will say we tried a lot of them more than once. So we were eating pizza, you know, almost half the days of the year, I think. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, at various points, we sort of like made a rule that we had to have just slices and not order a whole pie. But now that's transitioned. So we're actually doing something a little bit different. And we've been exploring the city through almond croissants. And so the thing we like about it is it gets us out and about, out and about, there we go, to uh, <laughs> areas of the city that we wouldn't otherwise maybe go to. So it's a really fun way to explore like all the, the uniqueness that New York has to offer. And we choose a spot that's highly rated, but not necessarily in an area that we would otherwise go to. And we take the, take the whole family on a tour. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. So... I've been to New York on multiple different occasions, primarily for conferences and stuff like that. I've not mm -hmm. actually spent a significant amount of time in New York City, but there was a, a Cypriot restaurant from Cyprus. And I know this because my college roommates originally from Greece, and he used to live in New York. And um, so I had gone on a, for a conference and I looked him up and I said, hey, I'm here. And so he had taken me to a Cypriot restaurant. That's the, one of the coolest things about New York City is I don't know where on earth you would find a Cypriot <laughs> restaurant, but New York City seems to have it. Probably more than one. Probably more than one. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I'm interested to know, with respect to your book, a little bit more about what your theme okay. is for the preface, because I find the preface of a book is like one of the most skipped over things. And you can learn a lot, I think, by only reading the preface of books. So one of the things that I found very interesting Towards the end of my residency, I knew that I wanted and I liked rhinoplasty. And so when I went to fellowship, I just out of, you know, through the match and all this kinds of stuff, there's a little bit of luck involved in this. I ended up going to a, a fellowship with Dr. Silver down in Atlanta, Georgia. And little known fact, but Dr. Silver's uncle was basically the foremost rhinoplasty surgeon in the United States when modern rhinoplasty came to the U.S. So modern rhinoplasty came to the U.S. after Jacques Joseph did his stuff in Europe and a dude named Froman with Froman Retractor brought the stuff to New York City and there were two dudes that learned from Froman and one of those guys was Abe Silver and Abe Silver is William Silver's uncle. And William Silver um, has no children 
um, who are plastic surgeons. And this was something that was taught father, son, father, son. So he calls me his Hindu son. <laughs> so um, it became very near and dear to my heart. I mean, I really, I, I love rhinoplasty. It's very challenging. But one of the things that I find that, and if I can put myself back as a resident, put myself back as a med student, I think a lot of people don't understand it as a surgery. And because when it is taught, first of all, 99% of the time when it's taught, there aren't a lot of really good teachers that teach it. And so you're given this type of thing where, oh, when you need to deal with the middle vault, use a spreader graft. Okay, and that's it. Okay, and then, um, you know, when you take down a dorsum, this is how you take down a dorsum. This is, I mean, it, it's, it's a series of rules. And the more you do this, and the more I've kind of like, not fought, it's like swimming in the ocean. So when you try to swim against the waves, you're exerting all this energy. And I've realized that you need to kind of step back a little bit and make peace with the surgery, not fight with the surgery. And when you do that, you get better results and you actually, you learn a lot more about the anatomy and how things work together. So the preface of my book is this, I'm taking the nose, breaking it down into different sections, like the radix, the middle vault, the bony middle vault, the cartilaginous middle vault, the super tip, the tip, the subnasally, the columella, it's like breaking it anatomically down to sections. And what I wanna really do is go, okay, these are all the tools for each one of these sections, which has not been done before. So therefore, like when you're dealing with the septum, so um, I don't know if you follow, there's a guy in uh, Turkey, his name is Dr. Tio. Tio has come up with this idea called Tio rhinoplasty, okay? It's a really powerful idea. So Tio has simplified rhinoplasty into 20 steps. From, the, from a marketing standpoint, Tio's super cool that he's saying, listen, almost you can do any rhinoplasty with 20 steps, which is a, it's a powerful tool. It's like having a power drill in your toolbox. It's pretty awesome. However, as a guy who's a very experienced carpenter, you're going, that is so cool to have a power drill. But there are little things where that thing doesn't work and you have to know what those little caveats are. So yesterday I was in this heated debate on Instagram where everybody's DMing going, those guys saying, hey, you don't know anything, T.O., about rhinoplasty in Latin America because our phenotype is so different than Turkish noses. I agree the phenotype is different, but nowhere does T.O. say that this is the end all be all for all rhinoplasty. And this is one of the problems in that rhinoplasty realm. Actually, it's there in almost every surgical realm is that we because I think a lot of people who don't understand something very fully love to have rules and regulations do if you see this do this if you see this do this but surgery especially plastic surgery like you understand like you've said is not a series of if then statements it is a series of understanding the problem and figuring out what all the potential solutions are what all the potential tools may need to be to solve those problems and how we get there the book is really a kind of a, a chronologic listing based on anatomical section of what all the potential processes are to take something down. So if you go through the index and you say, I want to take a dorsum down, 
Okay, so I'm going to give you, these are all the different ways that we can take a dorsum down. These are the pros, these are the cons, these are the special instances, and then I'm going to go, here's my favorite. This is why it's my favorite. Okay, and that doesn't mean that that's going to work in every single thing. You still need to know about the other ones, but this is why this is my favorite. Um, and it's kind of the reason why I got to this idea is what I've noticed is that every couple of years, okay, I have modified my technique, okay? So you, you're taught something, about a couple of years later, you figure out how your hands work and how things work in your hands, and you go, okay, I'm changing my technique a little bit. And then you go see somebody else and you go, ooh, that's a cool tool. I'm gonna learn about that, okay? And then I'm gonna try and implement that, but then, what you're doing is you're taking their tool, modifying that tool to fit your hands, your technique, whatever, and using it, you know, in these things. So I want to come across as saying there is no one right way and a wrong way. Okay. When I trained, for example, Billy rarely used spreader graphs in anybody. Okay. I mean, he just didn't. And so when I first got out, I didn't use spreader graphs. And then I was like, you know what? So every once in a while, okay, I get a dorsum that I just don't like how narrow it gets without spreader graphs. I like a way more natural dorsum. Billy trained in an era where he loved that super narrow, stylized, curved nose. And I'm like, Dude, that's not my gig. I don't, I don't like that. I like it softer. I like it a lot more natural. And so then I started using spreader graphs in everybody. And then I was going, okay, that's cool. I get good results. But again, there are some people where even the thinnest of spreader graphs, I think, makes their nose look bulbous in the cartilaginous midball. So how do you decide and go, this is a spreader graph kind of chick? This is a non-spreader graph chick. This is a chick, it doesn't matter which way you go, it's gonna be okay. So this is kind of what I wanna kind of put down in pictures, video, and thoughts. I love that. I, it, it sounds like we have very similar ideas about the tools. And one thing that I find really helpful in, in terms of navigating tool selection is you know having the visual of what the patient looks like and then having the visual of what the patient wants to look like because their inspo as i call it or inspiration really helps me determine what sort of a look they're going for and why so some women will show me you know both what they do want to look like and what they don't want to look like and then we really sit, sit down and unpack why you know, like sometimes it's a shape they don't like. Sometimes they'll show me five different types of breasts that they like, and they're all way different sizes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I say, well, what is it that you do like about this one? Because these ones are all different sizes. Right. Um, and they're like, well, you see here, like how the shape looks in the upper pole. I really like that there. You know, so I, I do think as a, as a surgeon who relies heavily on tools, the best thing you can do is like figure out what your patients want and then like help explain which tools are going to help you get there. Um, that's been the most valuable lesson for, for me so far, because I found the language 
part is tough. You know, I was having patients describe in, in words how they wanted to look and what looks natural and elegant to one woman looks totally different to another. And so right. I really help as like a visual specialty, having some like calibration of that visual skill is helpful. Do you use 3D imaging? I do. That's helpful. Yes and no. So <laughs> like, okay, so this is my opinion on 3D imaging. Okay, and it doesn't matter if it's 3D or 2D. I, I think it's the same, the same nuances, okay? Let's say you take a profile view and you want to take a dorsum down, you want to uprotate, you want to bring the you want to bring the tip in. Profile view, I think, is an it's an excellent tool to be able to describe to a patient what is it that is in their head. It's a communication tool. Because, like, for example, my gestalt, this is my view of the world is that let's say you get a Persian girl who's got a really big home. I really like if if I didn't talk to her at all, if I if she could just be a picture and I get to operate like no words are exchanged, I would give her a relatively straight profile because I think it looks natural and she could probably walk out and not a single person would not would know that she's had anything done. So that's my, my aesthetic. And I find that Persian girls come in two categories. 50% of them like that aesthetic and the other 50%, they want the over scoop. They love that, you know, very feminine, curvaceous looking nose. And this is, so this program is super cool for us to be able to kind of figure out what is it that you like? Mm -hmm. That part, rock star, awesome no complaints. Frontal view. This is where our problem lies because on the program, I can make your nose look like whatever I want to do, but that's not reality. We are limited with certain things like your skin envelope. I cannot change your skin envelope. If you are gifted with a nice, super thin skin, awesome possum, world's your oyster. You got this super crazy sebaceous thick skin. I'm sorry, but the world is not your oyster. There is a limitation to what I can achieve in the operating room. So this is kind of where I find it challenging to be ex to be able to explain that to people because this it's just like everything else. It's like you were talking about Instagram, like you were saying that many of your patients, you know, they do get their information on Instagram. This is becoming more and more common. So when we live in this super visual world, patients sometimes do not understand that not everything is translatable from picture to surgery. So like I've learned as I've gotten older, like I'll sometimes get women that go, can't you just do this? All I need is this. And I was like, I'm sorry, but your finger and my scalpel don't work the same way. <laughs> what you're doing in the mirror with your finger does not exist with the scalpel. But I think you hit on something so important that really all of uh, the value is in using it as a communication tool. Right. And that can be helpful from an expectation management too. Right. So, you know, if someone shows you an inspo photo that's unrealistic, 
it's helpful. Let me tell you, run. explore that before run. surgery. Yeah. Run. <laughs> yeah. And I think like having that conversation to say, you know what? I love that you said my, your finger and my scalp are not the same. I, th I think the same thing can be said sometimes about like a push-up bra and like surgery are very different um, things. And like, you can't really achieve the look that you get in a push-up bra with anything other than a push-up bra. <laughs> I see that. And like you, and, and, and to some degree, like we have newer technologies that help to some degree, but like, you know, a conversation I have a lot with patients is like your breast footprint or where your breast lives on your, your chest wall. That's not something that you really change much with surgery right. um, and providing them with some examples of celebrities that fit those different categories and, you know, who they are more similar to can sometimes help, but you're not going to, awesome. I like that. That's a good idea. <laughs> if your breasts live low on your chest, not that they're tonic, but just that, you know, someone like Kate Hudson has a beautiful breast aesthetic, but they are lower on her chest wall, a lower breast footprint than someone like Halle Berry, who sits quite high on her chest. So if you fit into one of those two categories, it's helpful to use, you know, someone who has a similar aesthetic to you. Hmm, I like that. that. That was a very good point. Um, I, I like that idea of um, using the um, celebrity as, as the, uh, as a speaking tool. That was, a, that's a good idea. It's relatable and it's, and it's, it's readily pictures of celebrities are readily available, especially like right. wearing low cut tops or like bikinis, that sort of thing. I find that the, that can be as helpful inspo as sometimes like pre and post surgical photos. So are you pro with all of this Instagram? Are you anti all of this Instagram? <laughs> you know, and don't give me um, a and don't he, don't give me a politically correct answer. There's a reason <laughs> I'm asking this question. No, I'm very pro. I found like it's been it's been a such such a helpful um, adjunct for me to help actually get good information out to patients. I I do say that like ultimately I trained to be a plastic surgeon, so I'm still navigating my way through my my comfort being on social media. But I I do certainly find that it's it's helpful because patients usually come into consultations with me already having an idea of like what I'm all about and what sorts of what sorts of things I talk about in the consultation. So it's nice having almost like a bit of a screening tool as well to see whether or not you're a good fit for one another. Because I think a lot of a lot of cases, um, you know, establishing a good patient relationship is really important. A lot of people can technically do the operation, but um, ultimately you want someone that you can relate to and you can sit down and have a conversation to sort of sift through some of the details about the process and what it means and, and be there right. like for the whole journey. So it's helpful, I, I find as a screening tool, most of the patients that I meet have already sort of an idea of sort of what goes on at our practice. Yeah. So the reason why I said I didn't want you to take the politically correct route and go down the middle and I wanted you to pick is, so I find that that question is, has a high amount of age bias. Oh, interesting. Okay. So if I speak to, for example, if I speak to Billy, who's in his eighties, he hates Instagram. He thinks it's the devil's work. <laughs> 
Now, then if I go into somebody who's probably in their 50s, 60s, they are still anti, but they see it as a tool. It's, it's, it's only a tool to improve my practice. Okay, like I'm kind of of the dude that's in the middle and then you're on this end of the spectrum. Like, so it, it, I find that there is a lot amount, a lot of uh, age bias in the reason for that answer. That, that's why I asked you to pick something in there. There wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a right or wrong. It was just, I was wanting to see whether my hypothesis was, was correct. So you said that you were really into sports. So mm -hmm. which sports are you into? Well, as a good Canadian, my sort of primary sport was hockey. <laughs> uh, but I you have I, all your I, teeth, though. I, I do still have <laughs> all my teeth. Yeah, I would say, you know, volleyball, track, badminton, or other sports that I like played on the school teams for and that sort of thing. Curling as well. It's a little bit of a Canadian game. <laughs> but, you guys have ice. I mean, like I look down here where, you know, we get like maybe a half inch every five years. So curling wouldn't work so well here. It'd be more like skipping rocks. Yeah. Well, my, you know, my dad used to tell me something that is sort of relatable now. He could say, you know, you can be sort of good at a lot of things, or you can be really good at one thing. And if you spread yourself too thin, you know, you won't achieve the highest level at anything. So you got to choose, choose your sport girl. And so hockey was kind of the one that I played the most competitively. Oh, that's cool. that's I feel cool. like in plastic surgery, there's a whole spectrum of things you can do. Um, but I think it's similar in that if you really focus on one area and become hyper subspecialized, uh, the same can be said, you can really like achieve a high level. Right. And you, to some degree, you can, I think, um, spread yourself a little bit too thin and do try and do too, too much. So it's, it's interesting how much of the lessons that you learn during, during sport can be related to your, you know, life for years to come. Dr. Anna, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Your stuff. Um, our website, 19plasticsurgery.com. And your Instagram? Anna K. Steve MD. Facebook is Anna Steve. Okay. And TikTok for the new generation is. Yeah, uh, wait, wait, are you dancing on there? I try not to dance, but. Uh, okay, because that's what's going to say... really drive the viewership. So <laughs> if you're going to share your TikTok within the next week, you got to put a dance on there. You All can't right. be worse than me. Anna K. Steve, MD. Look for my uh, moves this week. Awesome. Please <laughs> look her up, look for her moves, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to another episode of Plastic Surgery Unplugged. Make sure to hit the subscribe button, leave us a review. It really does help the show. You can find us, Author Facia Plastics, on YouTube. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and as well as our website, Author Facia Plastics.